Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of From My Point of View. Late upload this week, but it is because I got to go see Across the Spider-Verse Tuesday night. So I figured let me just hold off on recording until Wednesday. I could talk about that. The finals, we have Game 3 tonight. Um, Stanley Cup finals we could talk about. And the controversial Live Tour merging with PGA after all of that hoopla and mumbo jumbo with the you know trying to convince PGA players not to go take the Saudi Arabian money and playing the live tour now suddenly the PGA is merging with live so not great on that front uh the Golden Knights dominating the first two games in Vegas I was in Vegas for game one it was electric the over hit that was awesome so and the over hit in game two as well um so I'll, I'll talk about that experience and and the the Stanley Cup uh Vegas has dominated the first two games so they're up two nothing heading back to Florida um game one of the finals almost got the heat backdoor cover at plus nine um they lost by 11 so it was interesting because the heat had no business being in that game and yet suddenly in the fourth quarter it looked like they were about to pull another comeback out of their ass like they did against the bucks multiple times didn't happen nuggets were able to close it out but game two the heat dominated uh almost kind of choked it at the end there jamal murray missing a clock expiring three-pointer to tie it and the heat end up winning by three now game uh game three back so they split in denver going back to miami now tonight Wednesday night, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. I think it's like 80% of the time, whoever wins game three wins the finals. So a very important game in the grand scheme of the finals. Obviously, the the Heat did their job winning at least one in Denver. Um, By all metrics and analytics, people have the Nuggets as heavy favorites in this. But the Heat did what they had to do there. So uh, we will talk about that. And then the Spider-Verse, we'll talk about Into the Spider-Verse, or Across the Spider-Verse, excuse me, at the end of the episode. So to start uh, this live tour nonsense, um, the guys at the PGA have to be fuming, right? I I don't know. I'm not a huge golf guy. I don't don't really pay attention to golf that much, like super intensely or closely. I watch some of the major tournaments, but that's about it. but this this is an interesting concept because the Live Tour is something that the PGA was pissed about. They were pissed that like Phil Mickelson went over there, Brooks Kepka, and a bunch of other guys went over there to play in that tour. They got offered a boatload of money and they accepted it. And then the PGA, their whole thing was to their guys, stay loyal to the tour, stay loyal to the PGA, don't take... This live tour money, it's Saudi money, it's dirty money, it's blood money, it's oil money. You don't want any part of that. Stay loyal to the PGA Tour and everything will be all right. Like you want a legacy with the PGA Tour and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of people listen. A lot of players listen. And a lot of players gave up, you know, tens of millions of dollars to go over to the live tour and play and make some easy money. Um, And, you know, Brooks Kepka just won a tournament up in Rochester after playing in the live tour, he came for this PGA event. So, you know, he's really made out nice with this whole deal. But now after constantly saying, you know, don't, who's the guy's name? Monahan, I think it is, the, the head of the PGA. 
don't go, don't go, stay to the PGA, don't go to Live Tour, don't take the Saudi money. They are now merging with the Live Tour. The PGA and the Live Tour are merging to become one entity. And if you're a guy who didn't take that that money, the tens of millions of dollars, however many, it was 10 million, 20 million, 50 million, 100 million, whatever it is, you didn't take it because you felt a sense of loyalty to the PGA. Now the PGA all of a sudden is merging with this same company and you just lost out on millions of dollars. You have to, I mean, you have to be furious. Like, it is, I I don't know, honestly, I'm not quite sure if this, guys are, guys are pissed. Guys have to be pissed. I'm not sure if this is good for the PGA in the long run. Um, Obviously, you bring guys like Phil and other high, higher profile golfers that were in the Live Tour back into the fold of the PGA, and you don't have to worry about basically any competition anymore because that was the whole thing, right? The PGA suddenly had competition and stealing away some of their golfers to go play in the Live Tour. Um, There's no more competition, but now it's like, how exactly does this work? Like, are what happens with the guys coming back? The guys that lost out on their money, obviously, like, they're probably going to be pretty pissed at the guys that left for the Live Tour. Um... I don't know. Like what there's going to be that there's going to be something to keep an eye on in terms of how well everyone meshes together uh back at this point and you know who's in who's good graces and how the PGA is really going to address this. Like how are they going to address the fact that they sold you on not going to the Live Tour and now suddenly they sold out and are acquiring the Live Tour? For money, like it, at the end of the day, it's all about money. Money always talks, and money always wins. So, it's pretty wild to think, like, you know, don't go to this job for easy money. Don't take this money. Don't take this money. And then they merge with this company that they told you not to go to, and suddenly everyone who was in the Live Tour comes back into the PGA Tour, basically scot free. Nothing bad happens. Like. It's wild. It's wild to think about. And I don't I don't think that people are I mean, certainly there are typical golfers who are not going to be very happy about this. Um and it's all it's all hip uh it's all you know hypocrisy anyway. It, it, everyone's hypocrites. Um it's not like there's never been tours in Saudi Arabia or Qatar or whatever else. There there have been European tours there. Like, golfers have played there before. So this whole, like, the Saudi Arabian money is blood money, all that kind of stuff, it's it's crazy. Like, it's, it's, very, it's very silly, and it's very... I feel bad for the PGA golfers who could have secured a very easy bag. Um, I think overall, overall, there's probably going to be not like the purses are probably going to rise in each tournament like the purses are going to be more so in the long run these guys in the pga are going to be making more money because of this merger but that doesn't make up for the the money that they already lost when they turned down the live offers you know 
So yeah, in the future, it's great. You'll benefit more and you'll you'll get bigger purses and all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't necessarily already make up. That's in the future. That's not right now. You already missed out on 50, 100, 150 million dollars, whatever it was that you got offered. So that doesn't really make up for the money that you lost, which is is messed up. You know, you never mess with someone's money. That's like a big, big time rule. And, and that's exactly what the PGA did. And they just turned, they, they talked all high and mighty about this and then just completely went back on everything they said and decided to merge with Live Tour anyway. So it, it's all very shady and not right. Uh, Scott Van Pelt was on, I think it was the Pat McAfee show saying the exact same thing, basically like, how are you going to go and, and preach all of this one day and then turn around and uh, have a, a merger with the Live Tour? It's not right. What does this mean for these PGA Tour guys who were told last summer, hey, no, fellas, don't take this money. Be loyal to the tour. That's bad money. You don't want to take that money. And then you wake up one Tuesday on Twitter and find out, wait a they took the money? How does that work? It's really dodgy because, Pat, no one... New. Think of any player you could think of. Rombo. He didn't know. Rory McIlroy, though. He's been the... I'm talking about a guy who's pretty legendary, who's been at it for a long time. Tiger. I'm just told no one knew. No one. So that's that's uh, Scott Van Pelt, who obviously he covers the Masters every year for ESPN, saying, additionally, no one knew that this was going to happen. No one knew that this was a possibility, that this was something that was being discussed or explored, and just completely blindsiding everyone in the live tour that PGA tour everyone and a massive move obviously in the golf community so pretty pretty wild to see all this unfold and to see how many people got screwed out of millions of dollars it's it's pretty messed up but um I'm, I'm very interested to see how exactly this all unfolds moving forward in terms of how the live guys are coming back in and how it affects the PGA guys who stayed. Okay, to the NBA Finals. Game 3 is tonight, Wednesday night. Um, I would like to think the Heat are going to win this. I'm pulling for the Heat. I, I like Jokic, don't get me wrong. Um, Denver being to the Finals for the first time. like They are an incredible team, a really well-put-together team. But the Heat have been on such a magical run. And such an impressive run that I think they really do deserve to win it. Not that Denver doesn't, um, but to have an eight seed win the finals, you know, they're only the second eight seed to ever make it to the to the finals. The '99 Knicks were the first, uh, and they lost to the Spurs. So I really, I, I really like, I like this. Like I, I, I like the Heat. Um, I think that. You know, they are maybe one of the most well-oiled machines that I've ever seen. Like, everyone just operates at such a high level. Um, but let's talk about the games, because I've, I've said what I think about the Heat before. So, with the games, Game 1 uh, couldn't even, like, you can't account for what happens in Game 1. You know, I, I think Max Struess and Caleb Martin, who Caleb Martin came off of, you know, just almost winning conference finals MVP to having maybe the worst game one, the worst game in the playoffs that he's had so far. Uh, 
Him and Max Struess, I think, hit a combined two shots the entire game. And something that was probably way more important in the the victory for Denver is that Miami shot two free throws the entire game. Two. That was it. They didn't get fouled shooting the ball. They didn't get fouled in the bonus. They, they didn't get fouled. And... You know, that is a that is a, a refereeing issue because there's just in no way, shape, or form in a professional basketball game can you ever convince me that the Nuggets didn't foul at all. You know, it, it's just not right. Bam out of bio popped off. He had a sensational. He's actually been sensational both games. Bam has been the best player for the Heat so far in these finals. Um, Jimmy Butler, he had a... Pretty forgettable game one. Um, the Heat were really, they had no business even being in this game. And yet, in the fourth quarter, I think they had cut it to six at one point when they were down like 25, 30 points. So they really fought back as they do. Um, I mean, there's there's no quit in this team. Uh, we saw it against the Bucks, We saw it against the Knicks. And against... Um, well, that's it. No, the Celtics. We saw it against the Celtics as well. There's just no no, no quit in this team at all. They always fight until the final whistle is blown. And they made this a game somehow where it almost seemed like they were going to win. And obviously the, the Nuggets, they, they made their shots and they played defense. The Heat didn't make all their shots. You know, Max Struess and Caleb Martin not being able to hit the broad side of a barn. If they can pull together at least a few more shots, like the Heat have a real chance of winning that game, but they just didn't. So it is what it is. Nuggets win game one. Game two, Miami was winning. They they held control basically the entire game, uh, or at least they kept it close. And then they pulled away a little bit in the fourth quarter. Nuggets tried to bring it back to uh, try and tie it with a, a couple minutes to go. The Heat were able to secure their lead. Big free throws from Bam with uh, under a minute left, or I think even maybe under 30 seconds left. Big free throws for him to make it a four-point game. Um, and they end up winning by three. So they held, they hold on for the lead. Jimmy Butler switches on to Jamal Murray at the end of the game for the final possession. Murray stepped back three. Jimmy well contested, but he still gets a pretty decent look, all things considered. Hits the side of the rim uh, and is no good. So the Heat end up winning by three, and now they're back in Miami for game three. I mentioned it, teasing it uh, at the beginning of the show here, where 80%. I think is the number. 80% of teams who win game three is the most important game of the series. Um, I believe Joe Torre actually used to say that as well. You take a, a strong control of the series when you go up two games to one. Now, obviously the formula, you want to win at home. Um, but if you go up 2-1... Let's say you drop the Heat go up 2-1, and let's say they drop game four in Miami. Now it's 2-2. Denver is going to have game seven at home. So it's going to be difficult for Miami. 
Like, they, they really need to ideally win both these games at home, go back to Denver, they maybe drop game five, go back to Miami for game six. Like, that's that's what you need. I'd be hard-pressed to think that this series wasn't going seven games just based on, like, how these first two games have looked. Um, Kevin Love got significant minutes in game two where he didn't even play at all in game one. And I remember, so I was checking into uh, my hotel in Vegas and this guy behind us heard us talking about the NBA and he heard me chuckle because I called... Uh, I said Jokic had fat man strength, you know, which he's not really, he's not really fat anymore, but, um, and he, he chuckled and, you know, he asked me about what I thought about the series, how it was going to go. And I said that uh, I would expect Kevin Love to, uh, get some, some run, get some, get some good run in, uh, for the heat and, I tried to explain, like, I think just with, you know, the uh, the the way that Denver's built, they're so big and they can rebound. Kevin Love can at least pro- try and provide some of that. And Aaron Gordon, at the beginning of the game for the Nuggets, went crazy. Aaron Gordon went crazy. He, he had, like, 10 points instantly. And if you just look at the box score, like, Struess was 0 for 10, Robinson was 1 for 6, and uh, Caleb Martin was one for seven. So the three of them combined hit one shot. It is at 30, 30, what is, hold on, 31, one for 31, the three of them. That's embarrassing. Or close to it. That's not it. What is it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's close to it. Close to it. They're really bad. They were really, 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 really bad. Um, and then you look, you know, Aaron Gordon had 16 points. Jamal Murray was a beast. He had a double-double. Jokic had a triple-double. And then Kevin Love didn't play in Game 1. And in Game 2, Kevin Love did play. I want to see how many minutes he did play. 22 minutes. But he had 10 rebounds. And that's what you need from him. You need him to be in there and like, yeah, he can shoot the three ball. He was 2 of 6 from 3. He, he's, a, he's an outside threat still. But you need him in there to at least be in the paint to box out Aaron Gordon, give uh, Jokic at least a little bit of a challenge on the boards. Because with Bam Adebayo, the way they've been using him offensively, they've been running the offense through him a lot. He brings the ball up a lot. He runs pick and rolls with guys. He is initiating, he has been initiating most of the Heat's offense in these first two games. Now, Jimmy Butler, he came alive down the stretch. He ended with 21, 9 assists, and 4 rebounds. Hit a couple big shots. Um, And then, bam, like I said, 21, 9, and 4 again. And Gabe Vincent came through big time, 23 points. Max Struess did what Max Struess is supposed to do. He won 4, 10 from 3. That's what they needed from him. Caleb Martin still not contributing anything through these first two games. Just 21 minutes and 3 points. Uh, Duncan Robinson had 10 points, 2 or 3 from 3 in 17 minutes. And then Kyle Lowry had 9 points at, in 24 minutes of action. The big contribution for me was the fact that Kevin Love was starting. Not even coming off the bench, he was starting. So I think they'll run with that same starting lineup. Give Kevin Love 20 to 25 minutes again tonight. Um, Butler and Bam going to be playing 40 minutes minimum at throughout the entire thing. That's pretty much... 
Now the the Heat are playing more guys. That then then they're playing a couple more guys than the Nuggets are. The Nuggets, uh, their starting lineups running thirty five plus minutes easy. And then they have uh, Christian Brown and Jeff Green getting a couple guys in there off the bench, and Bruce Brown is getting most of the minutes off the bench as that sixth man. But Gordon playing 38 minutes, Jokic is playing 42, Murray played 39, and Caldwell Pope played 36. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. is the only one who didn't play 30 minutes in the starting lineup. He played 26. Then Jeff Green gets 16, Brown gets 15, or Christian Brown gets 15, and Bruce Brown gets 27 off the bench. So that's what they're playing, whereas you have the Heat, they got their starting five, but Robinson got 17 off the bench, Martin got 21, Lowry got 24, and Cody Zeller and... Highsmith got eight and six minutes each off the bench, respectively. So they're still getting some run time just to give someone a couple minutes of an extra breather. Uh, but Kevin Love being in that starting lineup and getting 20 to 25 plus minutes is uh, of good best. Like he is a very high IQ level player. He knows what his role is on this team, he knows what it takes to win. He's been in these deep playoff runs. I was shocked when they did not play him. Um, when Spolster didn't play him a single minute in game one, I was shocked. Because I looked at the Nuggets and I said, Jamal Murray is the X factor for them. Jokic is their star player. He makes things go. You can only limit him so much, right? Before he starts affecting the game in different ways. Murray is the guy you have to be worried about when he gets going. Because when he gets going, it feels like the Nuggets are unstoppable. Like, there's nothing you can do. And with the Heat, they're so small. Like, they are not, compared to the Nuggets who have, you know, Jokic is one of the best uh, rebounders in the league, if not the best. And then you have Aaron Gordon who can crash the glass. And Michael Porter Jr., he had a double-double in game one. Like, he's no slouch on the glass. He can really, he has a good vertical He's long, athletic, six foot ten. He can get in there and get some rebounds if he needs to. So you got those three guys there that are very good rebounders for the Nuggets. Whereas the Heat, Bam can rebound, but and so can Jimmy, but they're not as big as those guys. So, and also they're like the those are the, the your two number guy your two number one guys on offense. So. How can you rely? You can't always rely on them to get rebounds. It's going to gas them out. So to have Kevin Love in there, he can spread the floor. Uh, You can play five out with him if you really wanted to. And he rebounds. He rebounds very effectively. Not only that, he's still number one in the league in drawing charges. So he's not a defensive liability. He He creates turnovers. He boxes out. Even if he doesn't get the rebound, he's boxing out. He's in the paint. He's... Tipping it up for extra chances, uh, keeping the ball, the possession alive. He does those things incredibly well. And he, if he hits a couple three-pointers throughout the course of the game, that's just an added bonus. But he is a big, he's going to be a big factor for the Heat in this playoffs, specifically because of the matchup that they have with the Nuggets in the front court. Um, and yeah, Jamal Murray, there's a whole narrative now going around. The Nuggets are 0-4. When Jokic scores 40 plus points, he did it uh, twice, or maybe he did it three times. No, because so he he must have did it once that one game that they lost 
in the first round against the Timberwolves, he must have done it. Because I know he did it twice against the Suns. And then, I mean, they've only lost three times in this entire playoffs. So those are the three games. Once against the Timberwolves, twice against the Suns, and then this game two against the Heat. The Nuggets are 0-4 when he scores 40-plus points. And you can't be like the team. Obviously, you don't <laughs> you don't want to go in and be like, well, Jokic, we don't we don't want you to score that much. Like try and distribute the ball. You know, he had four assists in game two. So try and distribute the ball, get everyone else going. We don't really need you to score. You never, ever, ever, ever are going to look at your star player and say, do not score the basketball if you can score the basketball. That's just not how it's going to happen. But what seems to be a theme here is that when he's scoring the ball, he's not facilitating. And the Nuggets really are best when he's facilitating. When he gets the ball and he makes those touch passes, he makes the extra pass to the corner. And the guys that he's passing to, whoever it is, whether it's Jamal Murray or Bruce Brown, you know, and everyone in between, when those guys are hitting their shots because he has the ball and he can see the floor like basically no one else in the entire world. He can make those extra passes. He can make those backdoor. He hits those backdoor cuts. He makes he sees those mismatches and dumps it in down low. Like in game one, he did it several times. Aaron Gordon gets matched up on Caleb Martin or Gabe Vincent. He makes those lobs over the top for Aaron Gordon who just puts his head down and gets the basket. There's nothing Miami can do. Right? Those are that's when the Nuggets offense is at its best. And it's weird to think that if he's scoring the basketball, letting him scoring the ba- score the basketball is somehow benefiting the other team. I don't like necessarily think that's the case. I don't necessarily think that you know, Miami's game plan is let Jokic score. Right? I mean, I remember Devin Booker said he can score 50 all he wants, but if we come out with the win, then I don't care. Right? I don't necessarily think that's Miami's mindset. I don't think that Spolstra's plan of attack is, hey, limit everyone else, and if Jokic is just going to score layups the entire time, then we have a pretty good chance of winning because when he's off the court, then aren't we, you know, we really ramp it up when he's off the court, and when he comes back in, you can let him score or let him shoot, just defend him well. And then we go hit our shots on the other end. I don't really think that's the game plan. But at the same time, my whole thing is Jamal Murray is the most dangerous guy on the court for the Nuggets. And again, like, I don't really mean that disrespectfully to Jokic. It's just that when I watch the Nuggets play, it just it feels like there's like a palpable shift in their offense when Murray is the one scoring the basketball. Uh cuz if you if you look at their games, you know, game uh game 2, Murray shot I think below 50%. Um and he only he didn't even score 20 points. Uh again, I know they only lost by 3, so it's like not really a uh it's not like a sizable margin, you know. It came down to the last possession for them to try and tie it. But Murray was 7 of 15, 3 of 8. He had 18 points. He had 10 assists again for the second straight game, but only 18 points. You know, so there was when 
when Jokic is distributing, when he's scoring 20 to 25 and he has a triple-double and, you know, Aaron Gordon has 15-plus, Michael Porter Jr., he only had five points on one of six from three, two of eight from the field, so he didn't have a good game too either. But when Jokic has like 20 to 25, 11 assists, 14, 15 rebounds like he does, and Gordon has 15, Porter has 15, Murray has 20 to 25, Caldwell Pope has 10, you know, Bruce Brown has 15-plus off the bench, that is when the Nuggets are absolutely at their best and they're clicking at all cylinders. And that's what happened in Game 1. Game 2, not so much. Jokic has 41. No one else, only uh, Murray is actually the only one else who cracked 15 plus points. He had 18. Everyone else had below 15 points. So, it's just it's just the way they operate. Um, And it's just the way that this team is built. And again, you're not going to be like Michael Malone's not going to go out there and say, hey, you know, Jokic, don't don't score the basketball, like try and distribute the ball more, get your teammates involved more. Like no one's going to do that. If Jokic is feeling it and he's scoring and there's not really anyone who could stop him, you're going to give your star player the basketball and tell him to go score like I, I really do think it's a bit of a coincidence that they're 0-4. I don't really think that uh I don't I don't really think that there's people who believe that the Nuggets are worse when he's scoring the basketball. I think it is a coincidence that they happen to lose all four playoff games when he does a majority of their scoring. I do think that's a coincidence, but that doesn't take away from the fact that they are better when he is distributing the basketball. I think that's just a fact. I think that's really a lot of people, if you watch the Nuggets and you've watched them in the playoffs and in the finals, you'll agree on that. I don't really think that's like a hot take, you know? But at the same time, like I said, you're not going to tell your star player to not score the basketball. If he's scoring the basketball at a highly efficient rate, like Jokic does, you know, he was 15 of... 28 or 16 to 28 uh shooting the ball then he's gonna shoot like shoot shoot it (laughs) you can't you can't tell him to not shoot so it'll we'll, we'll see how game three plays out again i fully expect the the heat to run with that same starting five of jimmy bam uh vincent struce and kevin love that seemed to work. Kevin Love being in the starting lineup, I think, is important. I'm glad that they're giving him some run. Um, big, big game for Miami because, like I said, if this go if this goes seven, the Nuggets have that that advantage, that home field advantage. But you need you need to win this first game in Miami and then you know deal with it after one game at a time. But you need to deal with it. After you win this first game in Miami. Because if you lose the second game. Then at least it's 2-2. And you're kind of fighting here. But you don't want to be in a position. Where you lose your first game at home. And now suddenly your back's against the wall. Like oh boy. Are we about to go down 3-1. Going back to Denver. You don't want that. Right. You want to be in a position to say. Hey we can either go back to Denver tied. Or go up 3-1. And have a commanding lead here. So this is a huge, huge, huge game. For both teams. But. I would say even more so for Miami because they don't have home court advantage uh, in the series. So if they can win this, that that puts them in a really, really, really good position. By the way, it's crazy outside too. 
It is. It is like on the on the northeast. I'm in New York right now, and it's like, it's like apocalyptic dune dune vibes. It really is. Like it's red, and just foggy. And if you didn't know any better, you'd think your backyard was on fire. Like that's the the smell of smoke that's in the air because like half of Canada is on fire. So it's just coming down to the northeast, and it's it's bad. It's really bad. So pretty crazy how it looks out right now. Like the sun's like a bright red. It's weird. It's like out of a movie. Um. Anyway, so that this is that's the end of our sports portion of the podcast. Full on spoiler warning: If you have not watched Spider Man. Across the Spider-Verse, it is the second of this three-parter that they're making with Into the Spider-Verse, which came out back in 2018, uh, and then Across the Spider-Verse, and now Beyond the Spider-Verse will be out March of 2024, so next year, less than a year away, and that is good. I think they just made both of them basically back-to-back, uh, because it took so, I guess it just took so long to make both of them. They were like, hell, it's going to be a two-parter. Let's just do it. So that's awesome. Very excited for the the second one. But obvious cliffhanger that it left off here. Uh, which apparently not everyone knew about. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very exciting. And uh, I'm very happy to have been able to go see this movie. And now talk about it on the podcast. So again, if you haven't seen Across the Spider-Verse, please... Go watch it, and then maybe you can come back and listen to what I have to say about it. So, initial thoughts, it's a great movie. Um, It is not as good as the first one, in my opinion. I think the first one definitely uh, gets the added benefit for me of not having any expectations. So, I thought... I didn't know really what to expect from the first one. I honestly didn't even think it was going to be good, like hand up. I didn't even think it was going to be good. I didn't really understand why Sony made this movie. Um, And then I went to go see it and was like, wow, it was spectacular. Like it was really one of the best Spider-Man movies I've ever seen in my entire life. So this one definitely had some higher expectations in terms of the story and like the characters and, and what was going on with it. Very, very awesome movie. The animation is just like, it is probably the, the best, most impressively animated movie I have ever seen in my entire life. Like the, the, the way that these characters move like Spider-Man, there's an added benefit to animated Spider-Man. There is, because he moves in ways that you can only do so much in live action with Spider-Man in terms of his movements, because he really is like, in all iterations, Peter Parker, Miles Morales, all these other different variations, whatever Spider-Man you want to go with, he is incredibly nimble and flexible and does these crazy stunts and the way he, you know, contorts his body to swing his webs and whatnot it is an added benefit to have an animated and just they get the movements are so crisp and beautiful and unique to watch and it's just such a fun movie it's so the color 
in the movie is just beautiful. Every character gets their own shade with with Gwen in the beginning. It's a much more like pastel blue and pink kind of coloring that she has and it, it suits her so well whereas Miles is more like rigid and, and and more realistic and then you have obviously like other characters um with Nueva York is a different palette um at the end when he goes to Earth 42 different palettes much darker greener and purpler right almost green goblin-esque even though it's also prowler right so just the color of this of these movies and the the way that they're able to like almost be their own character in the movie like the color tells such a uh important aspect of the story in conveying the tones and the emotions and and the story of miles and everyone else around him it's so awesome so I really liked in this movie how it was based it was much the same as it was it was just as much Gwen's story as Miles. So we kick off the movie with Gwen narrating in the third person almost. We get a more in-depth look about how her Peter died and how he he turned himself into the lizard and and he was killed accidentally by Gwen cuz she didn't know that Peter was the lizard and, and a building basically fell on him and he died. So we get a more in-depth look of her tragic origin and backstory. And we learn that her dad has been uh, hunting Spider-Woman for this entire time because she he saw her flee the scene of the crime where Peter was killed. And... He believes that she killed Peter, who is Gwen's best friend. So he is doing it for his daughter. He loves his daughter. They have a great relationship. But obviously, it's weighing on her that her dad is hunting her because she he thinks she killed Peter. We get a vulture that shows up at the Guggenheim, but it's not Adrian Toomes' vulture. It is like an old Italian Renaissance vulture who slipped through... A, uh, a crack in the multiverse and ended up there as a uh, anomaly. So Gwen shows up at the scene. She's having problems. Miguel O'Hara shows up and then um, Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman from a different universe, shows up and the three of them defeat Vulture and you get a, a sad moment with Gwen and her father where Gwen, Gwen, Captain Stacy is, you know, finally got Spider-Woman, right? It's like, okay, put your hands up. You're under arrest. And Gwen reveals herself and says, you know, it's me. Um, I obviously didn't kill Peter. I'm sorry. And Captain Stacy still tries to arrest her. Not, I don't, I don't, it was a very emotional moment, right? So then Gwen finally gets the opportunity. She leaves with Miguel to join like this Spider-Verse, multiversal uh, society of trying to keep like the Spider-Verse intact. Cut to Miles. Miles has been Spider-Man for, uh, I think the exact amount is like a year and three months or a year and four months is when he is now reunited with Gwen. And then that's, that, that's how it is. It's like a year and four months, a year and three months. So he's, he's grown up, he's taller, he's leaner. He is obviously much more experienced fighting crime and swinging and, and just being Spider-Man. Um, and this is where we get introduced to the, the main villain of the story who doesn't really show up too much. Um, 
He's probably, he's going to play a much larger role in the third movie. In this second movie, he's introduced as the villain. And his plans are really what drive this movie forward. But he's not really shown doing a whole lot. Um, other than just like accruing power. You really just, this movie's more of a, of a way to learn about the multiverse and, and, and the Spider-Verse and what's at stake. And the canon and all that kind of stuff as Miguel explains. So, we meet... Uh, the spot trying to rob like an ATM in a bodega and it's not really working. He doesn't really know how to use his powers. Miles shows up. They have a fight across the city. And eventually uh, he stops the spot in a on, a on a rooftop. Now the spot reveals himself to be a scientist from Alchemax who, if you remember in the first one, when Peter B. Parker and Miles are running away with the, the new doohickey or whatever... From Alchemax, Miles throws a bagel back at the door and it hits one of the scientists. And you give like a little bloop blurb that pops up above him. That is the spot. That is the guy who ends up becoming the spot. He gives his whole origin about how Earth-42, the spider that bit Miles was from Earth-42. It wasn't even from his Earth. So... We'll get into that later. Miguel explains how Miles is an anomaly in that fashion. But with, um, you know, the spider and everything, that the whole interdimensional thing with Alchemex, the collider and all that kind of stuff, that was his idea. And he was in the building when the collider exploded. Um, and he was transformed into this completely white, with black spots, interdimensional, it became his body, his skin, as he says, um, unfortunately for, he says, unfortunately for Miles and himself, this is skin, it's not a suit, so, he, um, basically becomes, like, an interdimensional being, and, but he doesn't really know how to use his powers yet, he's trying to figure it all out, um, and after Miles captures him, he runs to go to a, a parent, student parent-teacher conference with, his parents, where he is seen that he's done all A's, but except for Spanish, he has a B plus. Where his Puerto Rican mother gets very mad at him, which is very funny. The parents, Miles' parents, play a great role in this movie. They're both obviously fantastic characters in their own right, and very lovable and hilarious. Um, and Miles is great, obviously too. So the spot escapes where Miles had him tied up on the building. As he sees, he rushes out of his parents' theater conference. And they have another little bout where they end up back at Alchemex. Uh, the spot runs out of spots and accidentally kicks himself into this, this dimension, this white dimension, I guess, that only he can inhabit with all his spots spread around him, poking his head into different universes. Uh, one's like a 1940s comic booky universe. One's the Lego Spider-Man universe. Um, and then one is the Venom universe. From San Francisco, it's I've Earth whatever I don't know which Earth it was, but it is the Sony Venom universe. So they really dip into live action in this movie. Um, we'll get to that as well. But this is the first beat where he's like, "Oh wow, look at this!" Uh, Spider-Man and Jefferson uh, Morales have spider miles dad obviously have a, a heartfelt conversation kind of about miles and about how his son is so smart but he does stupid things he doesn't know what to do and miles is funny thing maybe get off his damn ass i don't know <laughs> he's like what'd you say so 
funny moment there. Um, but bottom line in this fight, the spot gets away. Enter Gwen. Well, Miles is late to his dad's uh, promotion party on a rooftop of their building. He's His dad is getting promoted to captain. Um, and Miles is late with the cakes. He gets grounded. He sneaks off with Gwen, who appears in a portal. It's kind of like a one-for-one shot of how the original movie ends, where with Miles listening to Sunflower, right? He's listening to that on his bed with his headphones, and then we see a portal. Um, and Gwen says, hey, Miles, like, you busy or whatever? It's kind of a one-for-one shot of that. He's listening to a different song, but Gwen does show up and land in his room, and they have a reunion. They go swinging away, and Gwen plants a... Gwen is leading the way, so it's not even like they're they're doing things one for one, one for one. Gwen's kind of leading the way, and Miles is just more or less copying everything that she's doing. Uh, and Gwen, unbeknownst to Miles, leads to the spot's hideout where she plants a uh, like a mini spider cam or whatever to keep an eye out on him. They continue to go swinging around and hanging out and they, you know, they have some heartfelt conversation and it's all lovey and very good. And uh, Gwen says in every universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man and in every universe it ends badly. So she's kind of like an out. They are both like an outlier because she is Gwen Stacy and she is Spider-Woman and he's not Peter Parker Spider-Man. He's Miles Morales, right? So they have a nice moment, but it's unbeknownst to Miles, again, she she has ulterior motives. She's, she's hanging out with him, but she that's not the reason why uh, she's there. And all the while, Miles has been, you know, daydreaming over her, wondering how she's been, what she's doing. And same thing for Peter B. Parker and everyone else that helped him in the spur, the first Spider-Verse movie. He He's wondering how they're doing. Like, those are his friends. They taught him how to be Spider-Man. They're they mean a lot to him and he's missed them all this time. And now finally Gwen shows up. She comes to the, you know, the rooftop party with her parents who she calls them both by their first names where they, they were telling miles that they hate that his friend calls them that. Um, and then suddenly she has to leave and miles doesn't know why, but she takes off and she dips and she goes to the, lair or the hideout of the spot um and miles after a nice heartfelt conversation with his mother about you know you could tell me anything goes to follow gwen gwen gets there and the spot's gone the building is exploded and she's like oh my god what the hell this is bad she uses some type of uh, crime scene reconstructive technology to see that the spot built a mini collider to give himself a little bit more power And he is now more or less jumping from universe to universe, collecting parts from different Alchemexes to build a collider again to juice himself up and become like basically a uh, multi-interdimensional threat. Jessica Drew says basically that Gwen's in trouble because she went to go see Miles when they specifically told her not to. Miles follows her in his invisible mode which Gwen obviously doesn't sense. And before and after Gwen walks through the portal to the uh, di- uh, where the spot is, Miles follows her. And she's like, God damn it. You're not supposed to be here. Um, and they enter 
Mumba- Mumbatten, I think it's called. It's like Mumbai and, uh, or Dubai and Manhattan, something like that. And it's, uh, you know, Middle Eastern ter- times, New York City, the Peter Parker there, um, his name's like Pajabar, Patarker, or something like that. It's like a, it's, it's like a Hindi name for Peter Parker, basically. But he's super funny. He's voiced by Dopinder from Deadpool, which, I, which is funny. And he's just like, there's like this great bit where he's like, ah, I said, you know, take a drink of chai, whatever. And Miles is like, I love chai tea. And he's like, chai tea? Chai means tea. You're saying tea tea. Are you? T-? And he goes on this whole rant. It's very funny. Um, and he's like basically perfect. You know, he has a beautiful girlfriend, loving family, whatever. He's got perfectly coiffed hair. He doesn't, he's, he brags about, he doesn't use any, um, you know, just a little, uh, Coconut oil and that's it. Nothing else. No product. No nothing. Uh, very modest guy, <laughs> but he's he's a funny character. So the three of them go to stop the spot, and he seals them off from Alchemex. And when Miles is trying to use his electrical powers to break through the barrier, Hobie Brown, voiced by Daniel Kaluuya, shows up and breaks through with his guitar, um, sound things, whatever. He gives Miles a tip: don't use the Tip of your fingers, use the palms, it's much more effective. Uh, and he's just talking at all times a cockney slang, and you could barely understand him, but he's hilarious. There's this ongoing bit of how, how Gwen stays at his place, and Miles is like, Oh, you stay at his place, wow. And he's like, Yeah, you left some uh what does he say? He says he says a different words for uh for sweaters. And Miles is like, What the hell does that mean? And they tell him, oh, it means sweaters. And he's like, are those my chucks? You left a toothbrush at my house. All that kind of stuff. <laughs> he's, uh, my British accent doesn't do him justice. But Miles is obviously getting jealous. And he's like, oh, I don't I don't know who you are. I've never heard of you. It's Hobie Brown. Very spider punk. Very cool character. Um, and ends up being a, a G at the end. And he's just like, I don't like labels. I don't. I hate the AM. I hate the PM. <laughs> he's like, uh, just he hates everything. He's like, uh, I'm not a role model. I was briefly a one-way model. <laughs> oh, God. So he, they team up to try and stop the spot. They fail. And the spot becomes... Basically, he goes from being uh, white, bright white with some black spots on him to basically all dark black matter at this point. Um, and he disappears. Now, Alchemex is destroyed, and the building is crumbling to the city below. So all, at this point, it's four Spider-Men and Spider-Woman spring into action to save everybody, which they inevitably do, but Gwen is alerted to a canon event is about to occur. And this is um, the death of Captain Stacy which happens in almost, this is a Spider-Man comic trope. So Captain Stacy dies saving a young child from falling debris. Captain Stacy is obviously Gwen Stacy's dad. And then I think in the original Spider-Man run, it's like comic, it's like number three or 30 something. I don't know, three something. I don't know what it is. Uh, Captain Stacy dies and like 30 chapters later, Gwen dies. So it's a tough run for Peter, right? This is how the events unfold. Someone close to you dies, and then someone else close to you dies. Like, it's it's a bad event. It's a canon event, as I'll explain in a minute. 
but this is supposed to happen, basically. Uh, Peter uh, Miles sees that this is, um, so the, the Hindi Spider-Man, this is his Captain Stacy, basically. Peter sees that he's in trouble. He goes to save him. And it should be noted at this point, I missed a part, when the spot mixes with the collider, him and Miles kind of has a vision where him and the spot's uh, futures kind of overlap. So Miles at this point is basically thinks he sees he's seeing his dad almost. So he springs into an action to save him. Gwen tries to stop him, and Miles thinks like, oh, she's trying to save him from being hurt. He's like, ah, thread the needle, right? No big deal. He pulls away, and he goes, he saves the girl and the captain, right? Uh... Pajabi Parker or whatever, Pajabi Parker or whatever, I don't know, I forget what his name is, but he's very happy, he thanks, you know, he thanks Miles, he thanks the other Spider-Man, like, the captain is very happy, you know, they, everyone, it's like a big happy ending, but now Dark Matter starts to envelop at the bottom of the city, and that's when Miguel and all these other Spider-Men show up to limit the anomaly, and they all head back to Spider-Man, Spider-Verse HQ at Nueva York, which is Spider-Man 2099, Miguel O'Hara. That's his uh, hometown. And this is where we see a ton of Spider-Men. We see the spectacular Spider-Man animated show. We see uh, PS4 Spider-Man. And just on and on and on and on. We go watch New Rockstar's video on the Easter eggs. He points out all the very specific Spider-Men that are there present at HQ. It's a very, very cool, awesome video that he points out a ton of details in it. Really, really fun. Um, But we head to Spider-Man HQ, and this is the main thing here is where Miguel explains what canon events are. So canon, I know what canon is because canon for me is like, it's it's a, a term used in anime a ton. Canon and filler. Canon is direct anime episodes adapted from the source material, which are manga. Um, in Spider-Verse, canon events are events in that happen to every Spider-Man across every universe. Some are good, some are bad, some are really bad. That's how Miguel explains it. So, again, New Rockstar's video, I remember seeing this. Some of the nodes that are all shared... The death of Uncle Ben, or an Uncle Ben-like figure, for, you know, it's, um, for Miles, it's Uncle Aaron, right? For Peter, it's Uncle Ben. Again, an Uncle Ben-like figure. That is something that every single Spider-Man experiences in one way or another, or you can boil it down to the... With great power comes great responsibility speech. Every single Spider-Man in some way, shape, or form has gotten that speech from someone who has died. Someone close to them who has died. So what Miles did saving that captain disrupted a canon event. And if you disrupt enough canon events in enough universes, the entire thing collapse and the universe as you know it is destroyed. So... They didn't really explore how Peter, uh, how Miles' actions affected that universe outside of like there was 
a anomaly event that they that they contained. I don't know if they'll revisit what what they did to fix it after, or if they can kind of put the things back into place now. I, I'm not really exactly sure, but um, regardless, there is a uh, a moment too where it seems like Venom, Eddie Brock Venom is a canon event in like every Spider-Man universe. Um other things like that. It's it's some things that are consistent in every universe, right? Miles disrupted one of them. M- Miguel goes on to say he knows what happens when you mess with things like that because he did it himself. He found a universe where he was happy, where he had a family, where he had a daughter, and the good himself in that universe was killed. So he slipped in there to replace himself in this universe. And it, they go over this in Doctor Strange, where they have you try and do that, and the entire that entire universe, that entire world is destroyed. So Miguel knows firsthand you don't do things like that. You mess. Because it will end in a disaster. And basically Miles ends up putting the pieces together. And what Miguel and everyone else, as they as every Spider-Man in the in this area starts to slowly surround Miles, Miles pieces pieces it together that they're basically telling him, Your dad is going to die. And there's nothing you can do about it. Because remember, his dad is being promoted to captain. So your dad is going to die and you have to let it happen. And now that you know it's going to happen, we cannot let you leave. You weren't even supposed to be here. We didn't want you to be here because we knew it was going to happen. And now you know everything about the Spider-Verse. You know about canon events and stuff like that and what's supposed to happen, what's not supposed to happen. Because you have to remember for all of these Spider-Men, these canon events have already happened. Right? For some of them, Gwen may have died. For a lot of them, Captain Stacy or a Captain-like figure has died. Uncle Ben has died. Miles has only experienced Uncle Aaron. None of these other things have happened for him. So now he's like, you expect me to sit here and let my father die? You guys are out of your mind. And basically, uh, Miguel throws a trap on him and tries to keep him there from escaping. Miles uses his electrical post pulse to escape at this point Hobie Brown who has been all the way up to this point collecting different things around the uh, room which come back into play later he dips as soon as Miles breaks free and go- ensues on this chase Hobie dips um, he's he's a G he's a real one he'll come back into play later so Miles starts running around Nueva York he runs around the facilities he somehow escapes all these different Spider-Men he uh, runs around Nueva York uh, Miguel says, you don't even know what you're doing. They hop on a high-speed bullet train up to what I guess is space. I have no idea. Um, and Miles learns that he is the original anomaly because Miguel gets pissed and tries to explain to him. And Gwen and Peter B. Parker are there and they're like, wait, this isn't what we agreed upon. And Miles is like, you knew? So he gets, you know, his heart broken by that. It felt like it's a betrayal. But Miguel explains to him that he is the original anomaly. The spider that bit him is not from his Earth. The spider that bit him is from Earth-42. 
He was never supposed to be Spider-Man. They already had a Peter Parker. If that spider from Earth-42 didn't bite you, your Peter Parker would still be alive. Your Uncle Aaron would still be alive. You wouldn't be Spider-Man. None of this would be happening. So he basically is just pinning it all on Miles and saying, you are the original anomaly. You caused all of this to happen. So Miguel kind of hates him for that fact. And now the fact that he's trying to upset the balance even more. So... Miles is like, I'm not that stupid. Uh, Miguel basically says, you don't know what you're doing. And he's like, I think I know a little bit of what I'm doing because I lured every single Spider-Man here. Um, he uses his electrical post to blow up half of Miguel's suit or at least short circuit it. And he jumps off the high speed bullet train and turns invisible. Um, he goes back to Alchemex where the there's like a an AI spider girl. She it's, she's like at home using her goggles, but she, um, she took a liking to miles. They kind of hit it off the first conversation that they had, but miles programs this machine that they have that sends anomalies back to their universes. He programs the machine to send them back to his universe, but it's not his universe. It's earth 42. Cause the machine analyzes your DNA from the spider that bit you. And the spider that bit him is not from his universe. So they hint at that. Miles goes back. Miguel gets there too late. And the girl that she hit it off with, that he hit it off with, I forget her name. But she's a real one as well. Um, she can abort the whole thing, but she chooses not to. And Miles gets sent to Earth-42. Gwen feels bad. Gwen um, or Miguel O'Hara takes Jessica, Drew, and Ben Riley, who is Scarlet Spider, voiced by Andy Samberg. Only a couple lines, but he's very funny. I like Scarlet Spider a lot. He's super cool. Uh, ben Riley's a clone of Spider-Man. He took Uncle Ben and Aunt May's maiden name, Riley. Um, also, Peter B. Parker has a, a child in this because of Miles, which obviously we all knew that was going to happen. So... He takes them to Miles' universe. Gwen also goes to Miles' universe where she learns he's in the wrong universe because she gets there and she gets a little Spider-Man. She's like, oh my God, he's not here. He's in the wrong universe. He's in... And Miles has a heartfelt moment with his mother. And there are so many clues that you don't pick up on. I'm sure on a rewatch you would pick up on it. But one thing I noticed when he was in the room, this jacket hoodie combo that he's been wearing all movie was a red hoodie. But in this universe, it's purple. So he's wearing this and I'm like, something's not right. This is weird. He has a heartfelt talk with his mom where he reveals he's Spider-Man. She's like, who's Spider-Man? Like as a joke. And you kind of think for a little bit, ah, like she's just a, a mom or whatever. Like she doesn't know, you know, who the superhero is, whatever. And she men he mentions that Spider-Man fought with dad or whatever. And she gets a little upset. She gives him a hug and she leaves. And then that's when Uncle Aaron walks in and Miles realizes, oh, shit. This is not my universe. Well, he kind of put it, pieced it together originally, but then he sees Uncle Aaron. He's like, oh, my God. He gives Uncle Aaron a big hug. He's like, I missed you. And Uncle Aaron's like, all right, you OK? He's like, you took out your braids. And Miles is like, yeah. He's like, on purpose? <laughs> he goes, yeah. Uh, and then this is where Uncle Aaron immediately begins. Like, this is fishy. This is not my Miles, right? So they leave. They're like, ah, let's go. I, we got We got to go. Cut back to Gwen. She has a heartfelt conversation with Miles' parents about how he loves you guys. He's trying to do the right thing. I got to go. I'll see you later. 
and they're like, what the hell's going on, right? Miles gets knocked out by his alternate, well, an, an alternate prowler, and Miles is chained up to a boxing bag, much like Peter B. Parker was in the first one, and he's trying to explain to Uncle Aaron, like, you're a good guy, I know you didn't want to be the prowler, like, I love you, I'm Miles, you gotta let me go, Turn and turns out there's no Spider-Man because the, the spider that was supposed to bite Miles in this universe left to go to Miles' universe. There is no Spider-Man here. New York is overrun with crime. And Miles Morales is the prowler on Earth-42. He has braids. And you can tell he has a little bit of a thicker Spanish accent because his dad is dead. Instead of the Uncle Aaron Rest in Power mural that Miles has on his Earth, it's for Jeff, De uh, Jeff Morales, rest in power. Um, so Miles' dad he says, your dad's alive in your universe? He's like, yes, you have to let me go to stop him or to help him. Like, you have you have to let me go. I can save him. And Miles, like, punches next to his head. He's like, why the hell would I do that? And there's this moment where you're like, you know the next movie's going to kick off with Miles' like, first trick, don't watch the mouth, man. Watch the hands, and he's going to un undo himself from the boxing thing and have to fight Miles Prowler. Um, <laughs> that's Tails' name in Sonic, which is funny. Um, but Miles Morales, his alternate self as the Prowler, and Uncle Aaron, who says, I'm not the Prowler, and then Miles shows him, he says, I am, you know? Uh, pretty, It's pretty dope. Awesome cliffhanger. Then we cut back to Gwen, who's finished narrating her story that she did in the beginning in third person. And she has everyone from the first Spider-Man movie, uh, the first Into the Spider-Verse movie. So Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Pig, um, the Spider-Robot Girl, uh, the, like anime Spider-Robot Girl. Um, and then Hobie Brown, um, the AI girl who's Spider -Man, a Spider-Woman in one universe. Um, and a couple other people. Her uh Peter B. Parker, obviously, he shows up. Um, and they're all ready to go help Miles in Earth-42. Now, Gwen, because she gets her thing revoked, her, uh, her interdimensional bracelet revoked, Hobie drops it off, and when she gets sent back to the universe, Hobie drops it off at her dad's house. And, and he made one. So all those parts he was stealing while they were going through the facility was to make a bracelet just in case Gwen got screwed over, which is exactly what happened. So he's a G. He's a real one. He helps out Miles. He helps out Gwen. And now Gwen is leading like this strike force to go against, I would imagine, Miguel and the spot. Because Miguel needs Jefferson Morales to die. Because it's a canon event for Miles. And Miles is like, Screw this. I'm not letting that happen. Like, why would I let this happen? So, it's going to be a, a full-out crazy, crazy fight sequence, I'm sure, in the third movie. First, they have to save Miles from Earth-42, his Prowler and Uncle Aaron. And then they have to bring him back to his world where the spot is planning on destroying his universe, basically, and getting revenge on Miles, who he sees as, like, his arch enemy. So... Very dope movie. Um, one thing I want to go back to is when they're showing all the deaths of Uncle Ben. 
There's very clearly Tobey Maguire's Uncle Ben death. Then you have a full-on close-up of Andrew Garfield and Captain Stacy death, which is crazy. So, and they also have, I think, Miguel references some nerdy Spider-Man and a Doctor Strange meddling with the multiverse on Earth 199999, uh, which is a bit confusing because there are different... I mean, they could be just, just wrong, I guess, but there are different labels for the MCU, but that is clearly a direct reference to Tom Holland and, you know, Benedict Cumberbatch, Doctor Strange, and Spider-Man in uh, No Way Home. Clearly a direct reference. So you have, and so you have the, the, the No Way Home reference, you have a clear-cut vision of Andrew Garfield in Spider-Man, The Amazing Spider-Man, and you have... Um, Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, and all those guys were together in one movie, so this is like, they're all kind of, pun intended, webbing together and connecting together to be one whole giant universe, so this has done an unbelievable job in representing like the multiverse and the Spider-Verse and the different possibilities and all this kind of stuff, really, really, really excellent movie. Um, leaves you on a sensational cliffhanger. And this is why, like, Gwen, this is just as much as Gwen's story as it is Miles. Um, So the third one, I would imagine, the first half is going to be, you know, saving Miles from Earth-42, bringing him back to um, his Earth and trying to save his dad. Miguel and Jessica Drew, who she sucks as Spider-Woman. She is an op. She is not, she's a, she's the feds. She's not cool. She doesn't help Gwen. She doesn't help Miles. She's a, she's a drone, you know, she has, whereas Hobie's just like, obviously Hobie's the rebellious type, but he's super dope. He's helping everyone. He's helping his homies. He's just there. Um, and Miguel is just like petrified of how things might go if they, if they don't go according to plan. Um, but he, Oscar Isaac as Miguel O'Hara, menace, right? Menace. And Miles tries to like, you know, warm up to him by uh, speaking Spanish. But Miguel speaks like very crisp, um, proper Spanish. Whereas Miles is like speaking Brooklyn, Puerto Rican Spanish, which is very different dialects. If you know anything about that language, there's a lot of different guys who speak Spanish, but not in the same ways, right? A lot of different cultures. So he <laughs> that didn't really work. <laughs> uh, that whole sequence from the beginning of them showing up in New Wave of York HQ all the way to the end is just like some really awesome A-tier superhero movie shit. It's so, so, so good. Uh, I enjoyed every minute of this movie. It has a runtime of about two hours and 20 minutes. Goes by in an instant. Um, again, like we're less than a year away from the final part of this movie, which is so great and I cannot wait for it. Uh, it's going to be sensational. I, I just, I can't talk high enough praise about this movie, especially with the expectations they had going in. It's just, it's phenomenal. Miles has this thing too in the whole movie where they keep calling him a kid. He's a kid. He's a kid. And he gets, keeps getting mad that they keep calling him a kid. Here's a, here's a scene. This is might be a little bit long but I'm gonna play it anyway this is the conversation that Miguel and Miles have while they're on the uh 
while they're on the bullet train. It's from TikTok, so it's a spoiler, but you know, I already did spoilers, so who cares? But now Fire. Everyone keeps telling me how my story's supposed to go. Nah, I'm gonna do my own thing. And he electrocutes Miguel off the train. So sick. So sick. Um, Shamik Moore, just another sensational job as uh, as Miles, as is like the rest of the cast of this uh, of this movie. Just sensational, sensational jobs. Peter B. Parker. Didn't really play a big part. Nick, uh, Jake Johnson, not not really a big part in this. But um, Haley Steinfeld, Shamik Moore, Daniel Kaluuya, Isaac, Oscar Isaac, Jake Johnson, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, uh, Pavit Pavarkar, I think that's what it is, Pavit Pavarkar, <laughs> Karan Sani, who he plays uh, Dopinder, Issa Rae as Spider-Woman, um, Jessica Drew. Just everyone is awesome. Jorma Tacombe, the two-thirds of the Lonely Islands in this movie. Uh, Jorma Tacone uh, plays the Vulture, and Andy Samberg voices Scarlet Spider, Ben Riley. Uh, Jason Schwartzman as the Spot, very funny. Not, I, I, he's not really like a threat until the very end, and then now he's obviously going to be like the big bad guy. But he's just so funny how he was like obsessed with Spider Man. Um, really, really good stuff. Who else is in this? I don't think there's really anyone else. J.K. Simmons makes a, a cameo as as some of the as uh, J. Joe Jameson, which he, I guess the one is that a canon event? Is J.K. Simmons just J. Jonah Jameson in every universe? I don't mind that. I don't mind that at all. Being a canon event, uh, just a super super dope movie. Really, just incredibly well done. Um, I do wonder what their plan is. Is there going to be some type of introduction to a live action Miles in this third movie? Oh, one of the best things ever. I was going over the things that they were mentioning. When they were looking through all the anomalies, there's a Donald Glover appearance as the Prowler. Which is just like, finally, this is so awesome. He's in an animated movie. Obviously, people wanted him to play a live action Miles Morales for a long time. He's kind of grown, I mean, he's not kind of, he has grown out of that role. Um, there was, in the original, in the first Spider-Verse movie, there was a cameo of him, him in his episode of Community wearing his Spider-Man pajamas. Um, obviously, in Homecoming, Spider-Man Homecoming, he gets uh, arrested by Tom Holland's Spider-Man, where he says, he doesn't specifically say he his name is Aaron or whatever, but... 
he says that, uh, you know, I got a nephew in the neighborhood. I don't want these weapons around here, right? And then there is a deleted post credit scene where he's calling and says, hey, Miles, like, I'm not going to be able to make it. So he does play Uncle Aaron in the Spider-Man Homecoming universe. So you could kind of make the reach that this Prowler that was taken away, uh, that this Prowler is is a older version maybe or just a different, different version of that same Uncle Aaron. Like, it's just full circle moment awesome to see him in live action like this was like who framed roger rabbit right with live action and animated characters interacting with one another this was so cool to see and it was just like so well done by sony and it it, it, a beautiful movie the interactions the cameos the references the the plot the dialogue the cinematography the colors the the action, the movement, the animation is beautiful, man. Oh my god, it's just so perfect on so many levels and is definitely a top 5 Spider-Man movie of all time. Top maybe even a top 3 Spider-Man movie of all time. Like quite honestly, when this is all said and done, you it's going to kind of be like uh like a trilogy that you just you just count as a whole cuz it's just when you look at it they're not separate stories that are sequels they are all tied at the very most the first one is going to be the biggest standalone movie but these next two are immediately intertwined with one another so as far as their stories go so all three of them together as just one big movie it's probably like one of the best Spider-Man stories that has ever been put on a big screen. Like if you really think about it, it's easily the best Spider-Man trilogy. If you want to count it in that regard, it's better than the the home MCU Marvel's Tom Holland Spider-Man. It's better than Toby's trilogy. It's way better than Andrew Garfield's two movies. So these are like the three in in totality, the three best Spider-Man movies that will probably I'm not even gonna say that we'll probably ever get. I'm sure, I'm hoping there'll be more that'll keep topping, upping the ante and just tor- tell more and more amazing Spider-Man stories. No pun intended. Um, but you, it's just they're fantastic, man. They just they the way that these these guys, these animators, have put their heart and soul into these movies, and just have captured the essence of the character. And I'm not even talking about Miles. Like, Miles is a fantastic character in his own right. Peter Parker will always be my Spider-Man. Yes, he takes a back seat in this movie. Gwen's awesome. Miguel O'Hara's awesome. It just, it's just such a wonderful job of taking all of the guys behind the mask and girls behind the mask and just being like, this is Spider-Man. This is who he is. Like, it, it's it's beautifully done. It's a really, 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 really sensational movie. Um, Spider-Man is my second favorite character of all time behind Batman. So just to have, like, that's why I was so in love with the Batman. I just felt like that was such a great Batman story after so many directors just didn't get him. Um so, well, not really so many directors. Z- Zack Snyder <laughs> didn't get Batman. So, uh, I'm just so happy that, like, 
Spider-Man is thriving. I personally think that the MCU thus far has done a good job with basically traditionalizing Tom Holland's Peter Parker. Because they, they, they took him in a direction to introduce him into the MCU in a very different way. But now they have him set up in a way where he is ready to grow and mature and we can get like if they want to do a little time jump to college Peter Parker which is the Spider-Man not animated Spider-Man that I grew up watching the 90s animated Spider-Man cartoon I grew up watching that he was a college student so who uh you know he was a college student who worked at the Daily Bugle part-time to make some money right so that's a whole thing that needs to be um introduced and they they could make that happen like just make Tom Holland be a college student who is the traditional Spider-Man. He starts doing the Daily Bugle stuff. He starts doing uh, the, you know, the science. He gets more and more entrenched into his scientific mind. You can go a lot of avenues with there. I think the MCU so far has done a decent job with Spider-Man. I am petrified of the future. Obviously, I just, I love Spider-Man. I want him to, he has the best criminals he has the best stories he has the best character like he in in marvel in my opinion he's the best marvel character he is their best superhero and they have to they have to be very delicate where how they go with him in the future but to have this animated stuff like sony has found it man they found it with these animated movies and i think they would be foolish to get away from it you can just, you can do so much more with animation, you know? And if you want to ride this this multiverse wave, you can go and introduce some other Spider-Man and just do story, spin-off stories, again, no pun intended, spin-off stories with them. And there's just a whole avenue of stuff that you can you can look at, different all different avenues of, of stories and different characters that you can look at. Um even if they're like shorts, like, you, you know, you, they're just, there's so much that you can do with these guys. There really is. And it's awesome. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Sony can do with these movies. They just have to remember just because they're so good and so many people love them and would love more of them. You can't rush it. Cause that's what happened with Marvel. You can't rush good things. Don't hire outside help for pennies on the dollar. That'll do half as good a job in a quicker time. Hire the people. Hire the animators that are going to put their blood for the appropriate rate, their blood, sweat, and tears into these movies no matter how long it takes. That's what makes these movies great. These people that are doing the animation, they really, really care about it. Really looking forward to the next movie. Again, comes out in less than a month. March of 2024, less than a year. I have nothing else to say. That's the movie. Basically, I know, obviously, I skipped over some parts. Go watch it, dude. Like, I'm just reminiscing with you guys here. Um, great movie. 10 out of 10. Like, both movies, 10 out of 10. I, I can't I can't praise them enough and what they're doing for the character of Spider-Man. Um and really giving Miles his own platform. Because they have... He's not hes not great in the comics. 
he has his moments and he has his runs, but like all in all, Miles doesn't really get a lot of love in the comics. Um, but now he is like he's a big part of the PlayStation games that everyone loves, and now he's he's got basically his own trilogy of movies, obviously with a bunch of other different variants of Spider-Man, but he is the main one. So it's cool to see all that, and it's cool to pull in all these different characters. All right, that'll do it for this episode from my point of view. Thank you all very much for listening. Uh, As always, NBA Finals tonight, and I just, I loved this Spider-Man movie. It was sensational. Go see it. Um, And if you need a refresher, just watch Into the Spider-Verse first, and then go watch this movie. You won't regret watching them back-to-back. It'll feel really fluid and just beautiful. Also, uh... I think Gwen's definitely going to die in the third movie. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Number one, she promised her dad when she reunited with him and he said he quit the police force, which means he's not a captain anymore, which means she doesn't have to worry about him dying. That's what kind of makes the switch turn on in her head. Like, hey, maybe things can change Uh, for spider people. She promises that she'll be right back. And also, Gwen Stacy always dies. Gwen Stacy dies in, like that's almost I think it's a canon event is like it never ends well she talked about it whenever they get into a relationship like it, and, and she foreshadowed that with Miles like Gwen Stacy always falls for Spider-Man and it never works out so I'm thinking maybe they have some type of romantic moment in the third movie and then Gwen sacrifices herself and dies saving Miles dad so he saves his dad but Gwen dies that would be like very typical sacrifice Spider-Man trauma for both sides for Gwen and for Miles and for like the spider verse it all ties up that's my two cents but what do I know so thank you all for listening and I'll talk to you have a great rest of your week and I'll talk to you all next Tuesday we'll be back to Tuesday next week Be hard for